good to be with you all this morning. A great time of singing together and praying together. Thank you, Jim, and music team, and Dave for leading us to the table so well. If you have a Bible with you, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, starting at verse 18 is where we're going to pick up this morning. I have two younger brothers who both ended up being uh, national team members for men's gymnastics for Canada. Uh, you know, the pommel horse, high bar, rings, all that kind of stuff. And, and so I grew up attending a lot of their competitions and tournaments on weekends, rooting for them in the stands. And, and over the years, I, I noticed something happening in my life at, when, at these competitions as I was at more and more was that, you know, I found myself growing numb to the extraordinary things, the really humanly impossible things that they were doing. You know, I, I would sit there at times and, and witness these athletes do iron cross on the rings, holding stuff, but upside down. What, what is what is that? Or I, I, would, I would watch them jump up on the floor and do a double backflip with two twists and land on their feet. And I noticed myself over the years and over the weekends watching them eventually becoming so numb that I would watch this happen and, and say to myself, usually with a half-eaten bag of chips in my lap, that's what all armchair athletes do, right? I'd sit there and, and watch them and say, his toes weren't pointed. His legs were, I've seen better. That, that form was a little off. What should have been awe-inspiring and, and impressive became commonplace and unremarkable. I'm sure that you can relate to this trend in your own life, probably not specifically with men's gymnastics, but with something. Things in our lives that that should be remarkable, should be awe-inspiring, should be special. And yet because of repetition, being exposed to it over and over again, they become normal. They become normal. It's this danger of familiarity. It can, if we're not careful, it can breed apathy. It can breed indifference. We get so used to something that we take it for granted, no matter how special or unique it actually is. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I don't need to tell you that this can happen to our relationship with Jesus Christ. That no matter how extraordinary he is, familiarity, it can stifle the appropriate awe we should feel when we think about him. The awe we should feel when we think about his beauty, what he's done, who he is. And instead, this familiarity, it can breed in us, it can encourage almost a dispassionate indifference if we're not careful. And obviously, we don't want that to happen. We want to ask the question this morning, how do we fight against that? How do we fight against this apathy drifting into our lives? And Matthew's going to help us with that this morning as well. In Matthew chapter 1, as I said, verses 18 through to 25, through to the end of the chapter. Uh, this passage is, is Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. And it's really, as we'll see, recorded in such a way as to, to highlight just how special and just how unique Jesus is, both in his person and in his work, both in who he is and what he came to do. He's very special and very unique, and we want to take notice of that. We don't want that to ever become, we don't ever want to become numb to how special he is. Matthew wants his readers, including us, to know that there is literally no one like Jesus. And because there is no one like him, there is no one who can do what he came to do, what he is currently doing and what he has promised to accomplish in the future. There is nothing commonplace about him. He is absolutely extraordinary. 
and worthy of celebration and adoration and worship. And that's what we're going to find in this section of Scripture this morning. Now, as I said, there's two things we want to look at today. We want to look at how special Jesus is in who he is, but then also what he did and what he is doing. Now, the second actually builds on top of the first, as we'll see. He can only do what he came to do because of who he is. So we're going to start there with who he is. And we see that as we begin in verse 18, this description of this text and and how Matthew lays out the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus. Uh, Matthew seems to present as we work through this text, and then as you go through the rest of the Gospel of Count, it kind of builds on this idea that, that Jesus has these almost seem the seemingly contradictory realities about this Messiah. We find in this passage and through the rest of the gospel that he is both of humanity, but at the same time of divinity. He is both from man, but he is also from God, with, with neither retracting from the other. He somehow exists both and, which is what Matthew lays out here, and we want to catch a glimpse of. And let's begin by verse 18 and 19. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. In the first century, this idea of betrothal or or engagement, we need to understand that it was a a legally binding pre-marriage state. And living in this state, any unfaithfulness was seen as adultery. It was seen as adultery. And that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in here. There's two, uh, a young man, a young woman who, who are engaged, probably set up by their parents, and she's found to be pregnant. And so unfaithfulness, adultery, is suspected. Now, Matthew goes out of his way to mention the godliness of Joseph. Did you notice that? Uh, he was, she was found to be pregnant, and Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. He's a godly man. He obeyed the Torah. He was a good Jewish man. And because he was a good Jewish man and wanted to do right by the law, really only two options were available to Joseph at this time. Finding her apparently in adultery, he had two options. One was to publicly announce this accusation and and hold a trial to find out how this came to be, whether it was uh, consensual or not, and then there would be a ruling. And and this this trial would be very public, and because that would be very humiliating for, for Mary and probably her family as well. So that was option one. But option two is more private. They would forego the, the public trial and, and Joseph would write up a, a certificate of divorce and have two witnesses come along quietly. They would settle it and annul the marriage. And these were the two options for a godly Jew of the day. Which one will he choose? We find in this text that, that Joseph clearly chooses the latter. He's filled with compassion. He does not want to publicly disgrace this young woman. And so he settles to do it quietly and privately with two or more witnesses. And this is really the trajectory he's set on until he's interrupted by an angel who comes along and actually corroborates Mary's story. Remember, we're told here that she's pregnant, but it's by the Holy Spirit. We know that. The Holy Spirit has told us that. But keep in mind that not every character in this story knows that. Mary does, and I'm sure she's told Joseph. 
But we need to understand that, that not everyone understands that, and even if they heard it, not everyone is saying, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. I got pregnant by the Holy Spirit, totally. So there's this tension point here, and, and we come along and an angel interrupts Joseph after he's made what we would say is just a, a beautiful provision for Mary to do this quietly. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, his options, and decided on the one he would take, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now notice what the angel calls Joseph here. Son of David. Now, why bring his lineage to bear? Why, why highlight that at this point? Well, we know if you were here with us last week as we went through the genealogy, an exciting morning, right? Going through the genealogy together. We know that the Messiah that the Jewish people had been long waiting for had to come through because God promised it to be so through the line of Abraham and the line of David. And we know from last week in this genealogy that, that Joseph qualifies. He came from the royal lineage, the line of David. And here the angel is again pointing to it and saying, Joseph, son of David, you qualify. You qualify to bear this Messiah, to bring this Messiah forth that will redeem us all. But that's a problem. Because we know that Jesus did not come from Joseph. Joseph is not his dad. And so we have a problem. How does Jesus qualify to be the Messiah if he's not through the line of David? Well, we actually find the remedy to that problem at the end of the chapter in verses 24 and 25. Look with me. So Joseph wakes up from this dream. When Joseph Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So who named the baby? Joseph, right? And Matthew wants to highlight that. Joseph is the one who named the child. The angel may have assigned the name. The angel may have come and said, Joseph, this is what you're going to name the child. But it was Joseph on that time, when the time came that said, your name is Jesus. We need to note that because that's important, and Matthew wants us to see that because adoption, legal adoption, happens at the time of naming. So Joseph is coming along here and saying, his name is Jesus, and when he named that child, not only is he taking responsibility for that child, but he is adopting that baby into his family, and more importantly, messianically, into the line of David. And so here we see Matthew showing that that Jesus has a human origin. He belongs to a human line. Not only was he born to a woman, but he was legally adopted into a kingly genealogy. And that is very important for a Jewish audience to understand. He does belong to the line of David. He does qualify to be our Messiah, our Redeemer. And while this this connection to humanity is is showcased here through Joseph and and the adoption of Jesus, the other side, though, you remember, because he's he's of humanity, but he's also of God. We see that highlighted and showcased through Mary and her virginity. So as the adoption on one hand, he is of humanity, but then here comes the virginity, he is of God. 
And the virginity of, of Mary is, is mentioned over and over again through this text, so much so that we can't not notice it. Look again to verse 18. It says, His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Okay, so we have this engagement. So her virginity here is assumed. Right? They're, they're not married, they're together. Uh, they're uh, going to be married, but they're not yet. But before they came together, Matthew writes, so now it's flat out stated, they haven't even come together yet. She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Uh-oh. Now all of a sudden, it's questioned. Is, is she? She's pregnant. How could that possibly be? Then the text goes on. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want, her to, ex- did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Okay, so we've seen Joseph is a godly man. He wants to do right by Mary. He wants to do right by her. But the very fact that he is carrying on with these proceedings, pursuing annulment, means he probably believed that there was infidelity. Right? I'm going to end this. I want to annul this marriage. So now we have her virginity almost accept, or, um, rejected by Joseph if he's going to pursue annulment. Now dropping down to verse 20, second half of verse 20. This is the angel speaking to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what has conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now we have an angel getting in on this discussion of, of Mary's sexual history and saying, no, no, as crazy as the story sounds, she is, even though she's pregnant, she is still a virgin. And we drop down again to verse 22 and we have this uh, quote of Isaiah by Matthew. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And then finally, back to verse 25. But he did not, that's Joseph, did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. So on my count, there's eight verses here. And there's seven times that Mary's virginity is either stated or alluded to. We have it assumed Suggested, questioned, rejected, affirmed, affirmed, affirmed. That's a lot of attention given to this one detail. And the only reason for that much attention is because it is important. We are to notice this aspect of Mary's character. And we have to ask, okay, why is it so important? Well, it's because obviously she's pregnant. So so it would seem that this is not true, but the, the Holy Spirit inspiring Matthew says, no, you need to emphasize this. She is a virgin. She's pregnant, but she's a virgin. She has never known a man. And Matthew wants it as clear as possible that while Jesus had an earthly father through the adoption in Joseph's line, he has a heavenly father through the Holy Spirit in conception. It's these two realities that don't seem to fit together, but Matthew is holding them both up and saying, this Jesus is special. He is unique because he is of humanity, but he is also of divinity. He is from God, but he is also from man. It's a mystery. But Matthew wants that to be very, very clear. He comes from two different origins, human origins and divine origins, the son of Joseph and the son of God. And he's special. He's unique. And this becomes more pronounced when we consider his work, which we'll get to in a moment. But we need to understand that because Jesus is from and of both, he is uniquely equipped to stand right in the middle, to stand right between those two camps. And as we'll see, to represent one to the other. C.S. Lewis has said it well, the Son of God became a man that he might, that, that men might become sons of God. He became a man so that he, so that men might become sons of God. 
Jesus is unique. Only he could accomplish that. We live in a culture today that is adamant that all faiths, all religions kind of lead to the same spot. They're all just different paths up the same mountain. We're all striving for the same thing. And for many, many, many reasons, especially this one, Christians have to say that is not true. That is not true. Jesus is not like Muhammad. Jesus is not like the Buddha. He is absolutely unique. He is absolutely special. Only Jesus can claim to be in both camps and represent one to the other. He is absolutely unique. Christianity is absolutely unique because its figurehead, Jesus Christ, is absolutely unique. So we need to do away with all of, all of that type of thinking. That this is just one path to the same end point. Our book, being people of the book, if we read it, we know that door is not op- open. That option is not available to us. Jesus is not like any of the others. And Christianity is not like any of the others either. For many reasons, but certainly this reason. That Jesus is of God and of humanity. Okay, so what did he do? We've seen he's unique in his person. But how is he unique in his work, in what he came to accomplish? And as I said, the one sits on top of the other. You know, he's unique in his work that only he could accomplish because of his person, as we'll see. And what Jesus came to do, and we could spend a huge series on this, right? What did he come to do? What is he doing now as he's in, uh, at the right hand of God? What is he coming to? What's his future program? This is all his, his canon of work. Jesus is doing a whole lot. But what we find in this text is that all of this is, is foreshadowed and summarized in two words in our text. Two words that summarize all that Christ came to do, is doing, and will do. And it's summarized in the two names that he's given. The two names he's given in this text. Look with me. Verse 21 again. This comes the first name. This is from the angel. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sin. Now, at the time, Jesus was not an uncommon name. It wasn't uncommon. It's the the Greek of the Hebrew Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Notice what the angel is doing here. Yahweh is salvation. You're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Get the the connection? Yahweh is salvation. Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He's called Jesus because he is going to redeem a sinful humanity to a holy God. That's name number one. Name number two, verse 23. Quoting Isaiah the prophet, Matthew writes, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this is the special and unique work of Jesus, summarized in these two names. Jesus, God saves from sin, Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, so now we we step back and we try to put this all together. So Jesus uniquely stands in two camps, and both camps all at once. He is of God, of humanity. And because he can stand in the middle, representing one to the other and the other to the one, his name summarizes his work. He can take 
humanity and represent humanity to a holy God. And he can take a holy God and bring that God to humanity. And only he can do that. Only he can stand in the middle and represent one to the other. We stand here as New Testament Christians, represented to a, to a holy God by Jesus because he was man. And we have received a, a revelation of who God is fully, the author of Hebrews says, through Jesus because he is of God. We never want to lose sight of how awesome that truth is. We throw that word around sometimes, but truly, only God is awesome. And this truth, who Jesus is and, and, and what he came to do, fits in that category. It is truly awesome. He is of humanity, of God, and represents both to the other. Only he can do that. A story has been told of a, of a man who, on a harsh winter night, he heard this constant hitting at his door. And he went look, looking through the window. He went to see what was causing this racket. And he found these shivering little sparrows hitting the door. Attracted by the heat inside, they were trying to get in out of the cold. And, and this farmer, he was, he was moved by this, and so much so that he got bundled up and he went outside into his barn and he opened up the barn, turned on the lights, and, and, he, and he wanted to create a space where these birds could find some, some warmth and survive. And he, and he sprinkled some crumbs to, to attract them to the warmth. He, he did everything he could, and, and, but these, these birds would not go. They would not go to the light, they would not go to the heat, because uh, he, a huge alien creature, as he emerged from the house all bundled up, he scared them terrified them, and they flew away. They couldn't understand that he actually desired to help them survive and to stay warm. But he tried everything. He tried various tactics. He tried circling behind the birds to scare them into the heat. He tried flicking crumbs at them to get their attention. He tried disappearing for a while to see if they would make it on their own, but nothing seemed to work. So eventually, he went back inside and he watched the doomed sparrows through a window. And as he stared, a thought hit him. If only I could become a bird, he thought. One of them. Just for a moment, I wouldn't frighten them the way I am. I could show them the way to warmth and safety. At the same moment, another thought dawned on him. He had just understood the incarnation. God becoming human. A man's becoming a bird is nothing compared to God's becoming a man. The concept of a sovereign being as big as the universe he created, confining himself to a a human body was and is too much for some people to believe. That God would condescend himself into his own creation is all sorts of awesome. And it's a truth that we should be mindful of all the time, but especially comes into focus during this time of year, you know, when we think about Christmas and the incarnation and the manger scene and the shepherds and the wise men and the angels. We think about this idea that God, limitless, limited himself so that he could save us, save sinners, save rebels. And Jesus, what he came to do, and who he is, is absolutely incredible. And we never want that to become commonplace. We never want that to become bland and normal. It is the greatest miracle in the history of humanity. May it never be that we sit in the stands and say, ah, 
it's okay. It's not that great. I've seen better. No, it's too awesome for that. Matthew doesn't want that to happen. I know we don't want that to happen. Instead, Matthew, he wants us to, to remember the uniqueness of Jesus. To remember the uniqueness of Jesus. Remember who he is, his person, and, and what he came to do. The work he accomplished on the cross. A work that only he could accomplish. We are to remember the uniqueness of Jesus. Never condescend him to a place where he's just one of us. He's not. He is human, but he's also God. It's only Jesus who can stand in the middle for you and I. It's only Jesus who can represent us before a holy God. It's only Jesus who gave us the perfect picture of the Father. And so we are to remember the uniqueness of Jesus. And so I want to challenge you this, this Christmas season and beyond to, to find a way to remember how special he is. I'll tell you what I've done, but I mean this in, in, in no way to be prescriptive. Maybe if it's just something that can, can kind of jog your mind to, to get those creative juices flowing. So you can find your own mnemonic device where, you, where you're just constantly coming back to the fact Jesus is special. He's unique. What I've done is, is I've um, created a, an alarm on my phone that every day at noon, it sounds, middle of the day, sounds. And I can label these alarms. And my alarm pops up, and I have to go over to my phone and shut it off. And there's a message on my phone that simply says, my middleman. My middleman. And every day I go over and I have to shut that alarm off as it annoys the people around me. I shut it off and I see that message. I remember, Christ stands in the middle for me. And only he could stand in the middle for me. Wretched sinner that I am, he came down to die for me And he stands before a holy God and says, Josiah is mine. And he brought God down to earth so that I could see who he is. He has has communicated to us. And so I want to be reminded all the time. It's nothing much. But every day I have this small reminder, he's special. He's unique. He's, He's the one and only. So I encourage you to find some way to remind yourself constantly through this week, through this season, and through the years to come. That we would never come to the place where he's just normal. He's just commonplace. And that comes a risk when we are, because it's these two realities. As Christians, we want to be in the word. We talk about Jesus all the time. We pray all the time. We're, we're just inundated by talking of Jesus, and we should be. But we remember that familiarity, if we're not careful, can bring apathy and indifference. So we need to fight against that. Say, Lord, may I never forget how special and how unique Jesus Christ is. Let's ask the Lord to help us do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess there are times that we have fallen prey to something so miraculous, something of such eternal value, being relegated to what is commonplace in our lives. We confess that. I confess that to you, Father. That has happened. We ask for your help now to buffer against that tendency. We don't want to ever think of your Son, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, as anything other than amazing, wonderful, beautiful, powerful, special, unique. Father, we thank you for who he is, because it enabled him to do what he came to do, which is die on the cross for our sins. 
to rise from the dead, to ascend to your right hand, to intercede on our behalf and prepare to come back and bring his kingdom with him. As Jim helped us pray earlier, we pray that together as a body of Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Show us in real time just how special and unique you are. As this season rolls on, Father, we pray that we would be ever mindful of his his uniqueness, of his specialness. Guard us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.